Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. So if you'll follow along with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I wonder if you've ever thought about how complex it is <clears throat> to plan a party. Uh, you get together and you realize you've got a lot of decisions to make. Is it going to be a formal party or maybe a laid-back barbecue? Are you, do we need a plan B in case of bad weather? Uh, am I going to cook it myself or am I going to cater it? But you get everything together and you throw your party. And at the end of the night, you and your friend who helped you throw it collapse on the couch and you pass judgment. And it turns out this one, it was a great party. Why was it? Well, because that appetizer was fantastic. And I'm so glad that so-and-so got to come because they tell the best stories. But you know, next time we ought to have some different background music. You know, as it turns out, a really good party is kind of a complex system, isn't it? A system of inputs and outputs into it. We hope land us on that place on the couch at the very end of the night. But I was reading an article recently from an entrepreneur who said that whenever you begin to jump into a role as a manager, whether you're managing a party or whether you're even managing a corporation, that we often get confused as to what to concentrate on when we're working through these projects. And he said because the inertia pulls us to want to think mostly about the inputs to the project. Did we have enough money for the project? Did we, did we do our research? Uh, was technical support readily available? Did we, did we train our people well? And he goes to make the point that all of those things are important, but in order to be really successful, you need to concentrate more on your outputs. That is, define very early on what the criteria are that you want to do to make an impact, and then define your success on whether or not you've arrived at that or not. Now, look, it's okay to wonder whether your, your pastor is doing too much extraneous reading at this point. But I think that there's something huge in application to the way that Jesus pictures for us the Christian life. Because we looked last week at these first three Beatitudes as the entrance to what it looks like when a person becomes a Christian. And, of course, as that moves into our souls, we found that it was kind of sad and depressing we didn't see a lot good in ourselves, but that, that sadness was purposeful because it moved us to Christ. But here's the point. You can't stay there. Nor, I would say, are we to measure our spiritual life by what we found inside of us. I really can't stress this enough. It is the Bible's pattern to begin its work in you by guiding you into your heart. But afterward, it moves you out into a very different way of life. That's the pattern. And so the first three Beatitudes, in many ways, are the inputs of the Christian life. And the next five, therefore, are the outputs that will inevitably result from that journey. 
with the last three telling us what we can expect along the way. And what's interesting is if my entrepreneur friend is right, we're far healthier to focus on the outputs than we are the inputs. So here's the question that hangs over this morning's sermon. You've gone in, but have you gone out? What result has the gospel made in your life? Because this good life that Jesus is introducing for us is to be measured by the effect that the first three Beatitudes had on the way in which we approach life. And I think there's four things that Jesus helps us to measure and understand what should come out of a person. And they go like this. Finding righteousness, showing mercy, rooting out idolatry, and then peacemaking with opposition, of course. Let's look at that first one that Jesus goes into. Blessed are those who find righteousness. Because this output that comes is hungering and thirsting. Jesus says that when these first three Beatitudes begin to penetrate your heart, what discharges from your soul is hunger and thirst. Now look, in order to understand that, you've got to look at the object of that hungering and thirsting, which he says is righteousness. Now look. The word righteousness is a great big Bible word that you need to have some working knowledge of in order to grasp it. And as it turns out, like many words in the Bible, it's got a range of meanings. On the one hand, there's a righteousness that I would say is more outward, public as it were. There's also a more a righteousness that's also inward and more interpersonal, if you will. Let's look at that first one first. Jesus is saying that you'll know when these beatitudes have come and worked on you because in, in human flourishing will have worked through you because when you enter his kingdom, you suddenly will find a passion for things to be made right, for the world around us to be set to rights. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because when Jesus was introducing this sermon in Matthew chapter 4, right before the beginning of the sermon, in chapter 4, 12 through 7, 17, he comes and Jesus begins his opening sermon by quoting from Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. And in that quote, he talks about this great light that's been seen by the people who were dwelling in darkness. And if you begin to read through Isaiah chapter 9 in that entire context, you'll see that what Isaiah is talking about is being concerned about God ridding the world of oppression and injustice and all of the things that are out there in the world that cause people to suffer. In other words, Isaiah is predicting that when this kingdom comes, his people will have a passion for what you and I call social justice, ridding the world of oppression. It is a concern of God's people when the Beatitudes begin to grip the soul. But what happens is it doesn't take very long before you realize that before I can deal with the great problems that are out there in the world around me, I've got to deal with the problem between me and my brother and sister in Christ. In other words, there's a righteousness that means that you and I are right with each other, correct? How, what does that mean? Well, when I say that I'm right with someone, that we have righteousness, it means that we have a good status, I have weighed my credentials, and I can be considered to be right with you, you and I are. So you see where this is going. A Christian has become convinced that he has proper standing with God. And because that proper standing with God, we know, comes from Jesus' righteousness that was transferred, imputed to us from the cross. And now that knowledge, I doubt, for many of you is brand new to you. But I've always been struck by the fact that how easy it is for those great announcements about Jesus' righteousness coming to us can kind of land on us with a little bit of a thud. It's kind of mundane. 
It starts to sound like white noise when we come to church, when we hear about imputed righteousness. But I've always tried to give you opportunities to see, don't, don't externalize these Bible words, but realize you actually work through righteousness almost every day of your life. Now bear with me, this is a, this is a college type a- application, one that I am a little bit nervous to tread upon, but we're going to try it anyway. I worked for 12 years at Ole Miss as a campus minister for our denomination's campus ministry. And I watched some of the most powerful hungering and thirsting, if you will, happen yearly in connection with the Greek system. Now look, it is not my purpose this morning to be critical of the uh, Ole Miss Greek system at all, but I just want to note how powerful it was to watch freshmen come in and react to these recruitment activities, uh, what we used to call rush. And internally, in speaking to these students, I can tell you that every student that sort of worked through, you could feel them trying to compile a record for themselves. They want to be granted a status. And that status is one of being in. I'm inside. I want to gain entrance into the Holy of Holies. Initiation. That's what it is, where I'm accepted. And what happens is it becomes this incessant preoccupation to wonder about their worthiness. They hunger and they thirst to be escorted into the halls of Mississippi power through their particular Greek system. You know the language. The guys sit around kind of like, oh, this guy's a stand-up man. Hey, total face man for this frat. Girls, it's a little bit different. Oh, she is so cute. See them building records. What is that hunger? What is that thirst other than for righteousness? And all I want to convince you of is that this is the why the Bible casts so much of the description of the machinery of your soul in those very terms. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. You hear the implication. We all are hungering and thirsting creatures. We're always looking. Isaiah 55, 1, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no buddy, come, buy, and eat. John 4, 14, turns out the New Testament picks right up on it. But whoever drinks the water I give him, Jesus says, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The most vivid, of course, is John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. You hear the implication? Jesus is saying, you will only have access to the good life if you have found a righteousness that will never fail you. And unfortunately, that Greek system will. Just ask the seniors. But to those who have actually found their righteousness in Christ, what it says is, is what do they get? The promise that comes is that they will be filled. Not that they have a drop, not that they have partial or half full, filled. In other words, for those who have won Jesus' righteousness, there is no more righteousness to be won. God would do anything for our ultimate good if we're in that spot. Okay, do you see the input-output working? This humility, this poverty of spirit ushers forth in longing to see the world set to rights, from the smallest of relationships to the world around me. Secondly, though, we also find not only finding righteousness, but also that we are to show mercy. That's the second output of the life. Now, Kurt was able to preach a couple of excellent sermons that I would warmly commend to you uh, that we still got online. So I'm not going to belabor this point about what uh, Jesus means when he's talking about mercy. I just simply want you to note from this that you'll know when there has been a satisfaction of soul in you when it changes how you treat those around you. That's the connection. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The twin ideas there show you that there is an unbreakable connection between the way you think about God and the way that you treat those around you. Unbreakable connection. Am I fault-finding and begrudging of grace? I guess as you probably have the same suspicion of God. Am I withdrawn, afraid to confront people? My guess is that I have projected that idea on God. Am I depressed and hopeless? Well, then we probably have become convinced sometime in the past that God is looking at me in the same way. That's the connection Jesus is making. And so therefore, you'll know when you've met me because what discharges from you is mercy. And I realize there's a lot of confusion that people talk about at this point when they say the word mercy because we tend to think of it as just kindness, right? But mercy is more than that. The mercy Jesus is talking about is kindness that is extended to those who don't deserve it. By the way, I'm using the word deserve in a non-ultimate sense here. <laughs> but to give you an example, I think for a lot of us, we think about going to a convalescent center to visit the elderly, perhaps, as a mercy. But let's be honest, going and visiting those folks once a week, we, they deserve to have me come and do that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about a, a, a kindness that is equally extended to those people who have destroyed themselves and maybe even taken a little piece out of my hide in the process. That's who we extend that kind of mercy to. You know, we can't stand on the outside. We ought to pause if we ever find ourselves things, saying things like, well, you know, they brought it on themselves. Hmm. But here's the deal. That's exactly who Jesus has called us to minister to. Why? Because he loved us that way. It'll really jar you into attention when you think about how Jesus connects our extension of mercy to others to our apprehension of his mercy to me. I lack mercy because I have not received mercy. I've got to work through the calculus in my mind of saying, do I really want Jesus one day to look at me on the other side of the grave and say, well, you know, you brought it on yourself. Do I want that? Now, look, I realize that when we start talking about extending mercy into the lives of the undeserving, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the area of wisdom to make sure that our help is not hurting, right? I had to learn this the hard way when we were taking mission trips up to New York, uh, that it wasn't always helpful to hand cash to a homeless person. I had to learn that, that process there, how to do that. But when Jesus comes and gives this radical vision of the good life to his followers, He's saying that if you don't show mercy to others, the only thing you're going to do is to pass that hurt on to somebody else. We're really going to return to this end of April when we talk about Jesus' view of retribution. But here's the point he's going to make. If all of a sudden I am hurt by someone, if I don't have the means within me to absorb that and neutralize it, I'm just going to shove it on down the line to somebody else. Sometimes even generationally, just pass it on to the next generation. If there's no one who can absorb that hurt and neutralize it, all we do is multiply pain. And good gracious, <laughs> have we ever found ourselves at a cultural moment that's more like that? One of my new favorite Twitter followers right now is a, a lady by the name of Elizabeth Bruning. She's a Catholic commentator who recently tweeted back, I think it was back in November, this tweet that I saved. She goes, there is something, there's just something unsustainable about an environment, she's talking about contemporary American culture, that demands constant atonement, but has actively disdained the very idea of mercy. Think about that. We live in a world that take, demands constant atonement. You will pay for your sins in the outer darkness. Cancel culture. 
Notice that no one wants to talk about redemption culture. Is there a way back? Is there a way back into good graces? Again, I was talking with my pastor friends back in January, and we suddenly realized that probably one of the best forms of evangelism that we'll have at our fingertips in the generations to come is by saying, hey, look, I don't know what's going on out there, but it may be that in the church is the only place you'll ever find forgiveness in this culture. Because out there, they're tearing each other to shreds. Can we be restored here? Can we show mercy? So finding righteousness, showing mercy, those are the first two outputs. Thirdly, Jesus says that we are to root out idolatry. Verse 8 looks, and let's translate it this way. The good life, he says, belongs to the pure in heart. Now look, that word purity there doesn't necessarily mean without moral stain, even though I think that's included. Most, most commentators agree that what Jesus probably had in mind because of the parallels is a particular psalm, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. The psalmist says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does that mean? Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord, from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Now look, the question is, what does that mean? Well, There's a wonderful quote by a theologian Sinclair Ferguson who said, look, the impurity that Jesus is looking, here, looking at here is the impurity of compromise. It's the impurity of, of, of accommodation. The impure heart is not simply unclean. It is undecided and therefore divided. The old philosopher Soren Kierkegaard used to say that purity of heart is to will one thing. Kind of reminded me, actually, of James chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus' brother talks about the double-minded man. And he says that that double-minded man is, quote, unstable in all his ways. He has no stability. Here's the point. Jesus is saying that the reason behind all human personal instability, anybody got any of that? Is because of the sin of idolatry. You've heard me say before that there's not a whole lot of sins in the Bible that get more press, as it were, than idolatry. Why? Because you were created to be dominated by God. So that anything that I do outside of that domination, especially when it comes to the worship of other things that might give me life, just leads to my own dysfunction. Things break down in that regard. Look, you make an idol when you find yourself in it. It means to go to it for life and contentment. And for that reason, an idol is always going to feel right. It's always going to make me feel like I'm simply doing what's best for me. And for that reason, the Bible will go on to say that, that, that those idols tend to mask their own presence. You don't see them oftentimes. So for the pure in heart, though, the people who are dealing with their idolatries, what's the promise? They shall see God. I think that's connected the only way to deal with idolatry is to get vision correction, <laughs> new ways of seeing. And it occurred to me that there's a topic that I don't think I've even brought up from this pulpit before. And that is a certain um, experience that the theologians call the beatific vision. What is that? Well, there are worldwide Christians who tell stories about having visual experiences, visions of the resurrected Christ. They see him in that experience. Now, that might represent a tradition that's somewhat outside of where we are. However, 
It might surprise you that a lot of our Reformed and Puritan forebears that make up the theological tradition that we live in talk a lot about what happens to believers on their deathbeds. Some believers, not all, but every now and then, you'll have people who somehow will appear to have one foot in one world and another foot in the other and will even speak to what they're seeing on the other side. The Puritans used to refer to the beatific vision. Now look, those are some dramatic experiences. I'm neither commending them nor doing anything other than describing them. Except to say that a Christian, the normal Christian life, is for a, someone to have come and seen God. And the experience of seeing him was as delightful as any other earthly delight he'd ever had. It would lead people like the Methodist hymn writer, Charles Wesley, to write stanzas like, No angel tongues can tell thy love's ecstatic height. The glorious joy unspeakable, the beatific sight. Idolatry is rooted in the things that we find glorious. And so what Jesus is saying is, there must come a time in which I see friendship with God as glorious, as something delightful. And if my heart lacks that, it doesn't apply guilt to me. <laughs> just the opposite, it should just apply curiosity to me. Ooh, maybe I missed something. If my heart is dull in my thinking about Christ, maybe I missed something along the way. I didn't see it. Because if I don't have that, then purity of heart is going to be impossible. To will one thing implies that we've come to delight in that thing, and that is learning how to delight in God. And Jesus said, that's what I've come to show you how to do. Which leads me to the fourth and final output. Finding righteousness, showing mercy, rooting out idolatry, but finally, peacemaking and opposition. Finally, Jesus spends this last one on this question of how this translates to a Christian's expectation of the good life. And he first unloads this very power-packed word in verse 9 that you've got translated peacemakers. That word in the Hebrew is translated as the word shalom. In the Old Testament, when you see the word peace come up, it's the word shalom. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In other words, it's so much more, we said, than some cessation of hostilities. When the Bible says peace, we tend to think like, Calm, everybody put your guns down, we're going to have shalom, right? But it's actually a whole lot more than that. What it really means is, is, is a powerful integration. Shalom is when everything is in keeping with its design purpose. So let's imagine, let's imagine a watch. You know, kids, back in the day, we used to have these things called wristwatches. And on the inside, they had gears and stuff, not computer blips and whatnot. Anyway. But imagine that watch has all these little tiny gears and they're working in sync with each other, right? We can say that when the watch is accurately telling the time, that the gears inside there are experiencing shalom. They're living in the midst of their design purpose. That's what the word means. And so what the Bible will say is, is that human beings are called to the exact same thing. Every single Sunday here, we get up and say that we are here, one of our parts of our mission is to launch a healing. And what we mean by that is we are hoping to be people who are bartering shalom. We are out here trying to bring integration, to take the things of our world that are torn apart and trying to bring them back into sync. Whether it's your own psyche, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your city, whatever. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, Dr. Eric Mason, says that shalom is the biblical concept of universal flourishing wholeness, delight. And you know what it's like, he says? It's like a tapestry. <laughs> Listen to this quote. He says, God created the world to be a fabric, 
for everything to be woven together and independent. But he goes on to say that mistrust and injustice and oppression, deception, our political maneuvering, power plays, all of those things are ripping at the fabric of shalom. So therefore, the most, the most common output of a Christian who has understood those first three Beatitudes is to say, it's time for me to get stitching, to re-stitch, <laughs> to see the fabric of our lives, to start to unpack those. Honestly, the next handful of sermons that we're going to be doing over the next couple months are Jesus unpacking what that re-stitching looks like as we come to be peacemakers. Because what are you thinking right now? Whenever you talk about those things, about going out and healing the world, don't you, don't you get a little excited about that? You know what? That's exactly right. I, I want to be, be one of those people who's a peacemaker. Bring, bring in shalom. That's beautiful. I'm going to cross-stitch that on something as a, as a little sign. That's, let's do that. You kind of hear the hero music in the background of everybody being like, oh, I'm going to get an award. Like the mayor's going to give me the key to the city one day as soon as I finish all that. But then Jesus comes along and probably says, I need to let you know, though, before you get excited about that, of a little curious fact, and it's simply this. The world doesn't want fixing. <laughs> they don't want it. There's a sense in which the sin that, the, that, is, that is ripping apart the world has blinded them to their own influence. What was it that the, uh, Kevin Spacey and the usual suspect said? You know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And so there's all this mischief that's going on that we don't even realize. And so Jesus says, I need to let you know that when people take up arms and persecute you, hey, don't take it personally. You want to know why? Because they did the same thing to me. Now that may not sound very comforting, but you've got to listen to what happened to Jesus' earliest followers, especially in places like Acts chapter 5. There's this crazy verse that after the disciples had appeared before the religious council of their day and been beaten for their following Jesus, this is what it says in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What? You're rejoicing? No. When they got hammered for their faithfulness, what they realized was is their leaders saw something of Jesus in them. It kind of smelled like them. And there was nothing that delighted them more that they saw their elder brother in them. That's what a Christian boots off of. Reminds me of a story I saw about Army Sergeant Smokey Osborne, who had been deployed for the last 11 months, which was devastating to his much younger uh, little brother, fifth grade little Raider. Great name, Smokey and Raider. Smokey is Raider's hero, so much so that while his brother was deployed, Raider refused to wear anything but army fatigues the whole time while he was gone. Even that, when his birthday came around, he asked for his birthday rather than get presents. It's a fifth grader, by the way. Rather than get presents, he wanted his friends to come bring some, some material <laughs> for, for a, a care package to be sent to the soldiers. Right Now, what Raider did not know was that on the day that project was completed, and Raider was just sitting in his little class minding his business, in walks Smokey after 11 months of deployment that he had no idea he was returning home. And Smokey leans down into Raider's ear and just goes, hey, buddy. Now, look, if you are looking for an experience of emotional devastation this afternoon, I would invite you to go on YouTube and watch it go down. <laughs> because as soon as Raider realizes who it is, his reaction immediately is to back up he pins himself against the wall, terrified, like he's looking at an angel or a ghost or something. 
But then all of a sudden, there's this realization and recognition that sweeps over his face. And suddenly, he leaps up into his brother's arms and wraps himself around him and starts to cry like no other fifth grader ever has when they're in front of all of his friends. What happened? His first reaction was horror. That's what happens when the gospel gets us. We back up, we retreat, but all of a sudden we realize, that's my elder brother. And I want for people to mistake me for him because that's what he does with me. Look at the heart of these beatitudes. These are all descriptions of our elder brother, Jesus, who won all of this for me. And because that's the case, I can come to love him enough to start to look like him. I'm not sure you could sum up the Beatitudes better than the way the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 3, 8, and 9 when he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See what he's saying? For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. And no, we're not going to do a word study on the word rubbish, but it's over the top in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying at some certain point, I came to find Jesus' work on the cross as being what Jonathan Edwards would say, something that was altogether lovely, was compelling, was moving, was energizing. It terrified me at first and it pinned me against a wall, but now I've raced up to him and I've grabbed hold of him. That's the vision. That's what Jesus sets in front. So here's my question. <laughs> I see you've gone in, but have you gone out? Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. And Father, would you lead us through that? Your spirit has to give us that vision because the same sin that we come to confront the world with is in us. And so we need your assistance to get through it, to see you clearly. Maybe, Father, even in this last song, as we lift our voices, you might give us a glorious vision of yourself and your salvation for us. Would you do that? But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.